morning, everybody. Morning. In the months after graduating high school, I found that there was no limit to the amount of times that someone will ask you, so what are your plans now? And this question makes sense. As a high school graduate, your future is riddled with different variables and different influences and different paths to choose. It's only fitting that those close to you will ask you about your plans. After leaving home, a college student is subjected to a wide array of new thoughts and new ideas. Without their parents and community standing around them, it is now up to the student to make their own decisions. Who will they listen to? Who will they believe? And who will they follow? As I have heard and seen, college will be full of agendas and messages that work against the word of the Bible. There's no doubt about that. The questions that then arise are about the ability of a student like myself to handle these influences, to handle the people that directly oppose the message of our God. Growing up in the church and a Christian community, I've seen a great fire and enthusiasm in opposing the works of Satan. God wants us to despise sin. Romans 12, 9 tells us to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. I've seen people rightfully angered by the sin in our country, yet their thoughts and words about the matter can somehow paint them as being unchristian. So how could this be? The intent to squash sin is what God wants. You could say that he wants us to wage a war against sin. Yet the issue I see quite often is that this war against sin evolves into something different. It becomes a manhunt to humiliate, attack, and destroy anyone involved with the sin. It was about a month ago when I was informed that I'd be able to speak today. So, about a month ago, I began thinking of my message. Now, I would call what has happened since then a coincidence, but in a world where our God knows everything that will happen, it's hard to call anything a coincidence. In the past few weeks, Pastor Darwin has given multiple sermons having to do with how we treat sinners, which is exactly what I want to speak about today. So, thank you, Darwin, for unknowingly helping me out. Focusing back on the issue of sin at college, I've begun to see firsthand what all the clamor is about. On my orientation day, for example, there was a student in one of my groups named Isabella. Now, I did not know that this individual's name was Isabella at first, because Isabella was a large man with a shaggy beard. Now, an image like that, a transgender in the middle of my orientation group, can set off alarms in people's heads, like it might have been yours. That image begins to rile people up. It makes them think of the college that I'm going to as teeming with enemies. Issues with homosexuality, a sex-driven culture, and an overall destruction of God's values are so extremely prevalent in our world. Although we don't see them as much in our direct community, they still surround us, just as can be seen through the mass of students at a college. Some Christians, when agitated by the idea of these sins in the world, decide to attack people to scream and shout and threaten and mock. My question is this, how are you freeing these people of sin? That is the goal, right? The goal isn't to ruin someone's life, it's actually the opposite. I mentioned earlier the idea of waging a war with sin, and I'd like to add that the war is waged so that we can help others find salvation in Christ's arms. As tensions rise, I see people in our community turn the sinners of our world into some otherworldly enemy. They describe them like bad guys from a sci-fi movie. They must be eliminated at all costs. But here's a fun fact. We're actually sinners too. 
If the goal of our war as God's soldiers is to destroy sinners, then we're destroying our brothers and sisters. We're destroying ourselves. I'm not offering this message as a means to shrug off sin. Not by any means. I'm just trying to make the following point. How will your actions, when pointing out a sin, cause the sinner to react? Of course there are times to be filled with fury or zeal, just as Jesus was when he flipped the tables of the merchants. Overall, though, I would like to warn against quickness to anger when dealing with confronting someone's sins. I'll relate this to an account from C.S. Lewis. Lewis said he always used to struggle with the thought of judging the sin, but not the sinner. He couldn't grasp how to separate a bad deed from the man who committed it. Then he realized one case in which he had always done exactly that, with himself. If we're able to recall the bad decisions we made and the sins we committed, yet we still have hope and love for ourselves, then we must do the same for others. Amongst numerous other insults, the Pharisees called Jesus a friend of sinners to try and hurt him. The thing is, this phrase was true. Jesus is not a friend to sin, but he is a friend to sinners, like you and me. Think about what it is you are making as a Christian. If you treat someone with disrespect, then what makes them want to become a Christian like you? Jesus was a friend of sinners, and because of it, he was able to reach the sinners and share his message with them. So going off to college, I'll see a variety of people that do not know God but I will not make these people my enemies. My goal will instead be to make them brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you. Stand 
in the presence of a holy God. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for the communion. We pray that, Lord, that as we take communion today, that we will take it in a way that brings you honor and glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Feel free to come and take communion.
And I said, you know, in the end of July, we have Matthew chapter 13 that we're, that uh, the uh, Sunday school classes are going to be focusing on. I said, that's the Sunday I'll give you. So he had about three, three months to get this ready. So Dan is here this morning, and he's going to share what God has laid upon his heart in relating to uh, Matthew chapter 13. And uh, Joe... Uh, you mentioned uh, that you wanted to know what uh, gnashing of the teeth was. I almost stood up and said, Dan's going to tell you. Because <laughs> it's part of his sermon this morning. So come on, come on, come on up, Dan Stos, and uh, share with us this morning. Thank you, Pastor. I don't have a wireless mic, so i got to park myself in front of the pulpit here. But if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 13. If you recall, can we turn it down just a little bit? I'm really here. If you recall, in Matthew, or my previous sermons, I've been doing the parables of the kingdom from Matthew chapter 13. Um, what was the date, Shannon? Was it August? Uh, yeah, 22nd August 23rd. So in 2021, I did the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price, and I think it was last year I did the parable of the soils. I don't get up before you very often, but I decided, after those uh, first parables I did, every chance I got, I'm just going to keep going through Matthew chapter 13. So I did the parable of the soils last time, and the next parable is now the parable of the wheat and the tares. So that's where we're going to go. There's a few things we need to know first before we read it. First thing we need to know, what is a parable? The Greek word for parable is parabole. And what parabole means is it means to lay something down alongside of something else as a comparison. That's, that's all it means. It's, it's a, like a metaphor. It's an analogy. It's, it means to lay alongside of something else in comparison. And in the word parabole, you can hear the English word parallel. And so in my mind, I thought, well, it's like a railroad track. You've got a left track, and that is the story. Then you have your right track, and that is the truth that you're trying to convey. And then that track goes somewhere. It applies to us in some fashion. So you need to understand the story, you need to understand the truth that you're trying to comprehend, and then figure out where this track is going, and that's what we're going to try to do. Lucky for us, we have the explanation of the parables, and we have the Holy Spirit to explain the parables, and we have the Word of God to give us the parables, but the Jews of the time did not, and Jesus began speaking to them in parables, because the Pharisees said that he spoke, or his power came from Satan, and Jesus said, very well, if you don't believe in me, from now on I speak to you in parables. And in doing so, he fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in return. And I will heal them. The 
But that's not going to be the case for them in Jesus' time. He is talking to them in parables, and it might as well have been a river. Because they didn't understand the right track. They got the left track because he's using a story that everyone comprehends. Everyone knows these agricultural stories. They can understand this track. But if you can't understand the right track, and then you can't figure out where this is going, you have no idea what he's talking about. So we're going to try to unwind this parable today. Second thing you need to know, first thing was parable. Second thing you need to know is what is the kingdom of heaven. And the third thing you need to know is about the parable of souls. So what is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven or the heaven kingdom is another way to say it in English, the heaven kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom, excuse me, kingdom that is comprised of all people all over the world that know, understand, and believe the gospel message. That's the church age that we are in. We're in a time from the first coming to the second coming, this period of grace that's not really spoken about in the Old Testament, which, which probably is why the Jews didn't see Jesus as someone who would be a suffering servant, even though Isaiah said that, but they thought, if he is the Messiah and the kingdom is coming, he should be overthrowing the Romans, but he wasn't going to do that. It's not to be confused with the millennial kingdom to come. The millennial kingdom comes at the end of the age where Jesus will come back to earth after his second coming and rule in Jerusalem over the earth from Jerusalem. That's the millennial kingdom. We find ourselves in a period of the kingdom called the kingdom of heaven. Jesus isn't here physically ruling. He is spiritually ruling. He does have dominion and authority over all the earth. But as for us, we are citizens of this heavenly kingdom. We are in the world. We're not of the world. We are citizens of a different kingdom. 1 Peter 2 and Hebrews 13. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 11, if you're in Matthew 13, you can take a look. In verse 11... They asked him to explain this parable. And he says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Which goes back to what I said, that the, this period is not really spoken of in the Old Testament. It's a mystery to them. So Jesus is revealing this mystery to them through these parables. So we know what a parable is. We know what the kingdom of heaven is now. The last thing we need to review before we get going, the parable of the soils. In Mark chapter 4, yes, Mark chapter 4, verse 13, is the uh, parallel passage. And Matthew doesn't record this, but Mark does. When the disciples ask Jesus to explain the parable of the soils, Jesus says, if you don't understand the parable, this parable, how are you going to understand the rest of it? And so what he's saying is, is you have to understand the parable of the sword. If you don't get this one, you're not going to get the rest of them. And Matthew, literally, all of Matthew 13 is just once. He just smashes all the kingdom parables into one chapter. Just boom, 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 just goes right through them. The kingdom of heaven is light. kingdom of heaven is light. kingdom of heaven is light. Gives you another parable. Kingdom of heaven is light. Kingdom of heaven is light. Like there's eight of them. If you don't understand the parable of soil, you're not going to get the rest of them. So we have to understand that. 
which was my last time. So let's review that real quick. Man goes out to sell. Do you remember the video I put up here? Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? I told yeah. you that game's game. Yeah. There was a guy, he had, he took his robe and he folded it up, he had seed, and he would walk along and just scatter. That's what they would do. Some of that seed fell on a hard path that separates the fields. Some of it fell on rocky ground, which means, it doesn't mean it has rocks in it, it means that underneath the soil there's this layer of bedrock, which is what Israel would have. Some of it fell there. Some of it fell on soil that had weeds, and some of it fell on soil that had good soil. No bedrock, no weeds, it was good, tilled, ready-to-go soil. The soils represent the hearts of people. Some people's hearts are hardened. When you tell them the gospel message, when you speak the word of God to them, it just bounces off. It doesn't mean anything to them. They're hardened to the things of God, the spiritual things. And so when you tell them these things, it's like the birds coming to just eat the seed right off the ground. It doesn't has no effect. Period. It's just gone. The devil comes and takes it. They forgot what you said five minutes later. The next soil is the... Uh, Rocky soil, this is a false convert. They hear the word of God, it comes into their mind, but it never makes it to the heart. They, they receive it with joy, they act the part. They may legitimately be joyful, but underneath the soil is this bedrock. And it sprouts, the plant sprouts, the roots go down, it hits the bedrock, it's got no water, it's running out of nutrients, and the sun comes out, which in this case represents affliction, persecution, and it dries up the plant because it's got no water, it's got no moisture, it's got no fertilizer, it's got not, not enough nutrients, it can't make it, and it dies. The next soil, again, soils are the hearts, the condition of the heart, the next one is the weedy one. Again, you preach to them, you tell them the gospel, it comes into their mind, they hear it, they understand it, they accept it, but it never gets anywhere. Again, it sprouts, but then the worries of the world come. My job, sports, news, whatever else America can throw at us, which is a 24-7 bombardment, school, college, anything, it just comes in and just overtakes your time. It steals your time. It steals everything from you. And so you don't have the ability to grow spiritually. Last soil, the good soil. This is the true convert. They receive the word. It comes into the mind. They understand it. But then it changes the heart. <clears throat> they love it. They cherish it. They obey it. And they produce fruit, which every time you see producing fruit in the New Testament always refers to salvation. If you don't have fruit, you don't have salvation. And the fruit is the proof of your salvation. Good works don't give you salvation. They just prove you have it. And that's the, the pearl of great price in the, in the hidden treasure, the good soil. That's what happens. Those next two parables. So there's the review. We've got everything we need to know. To read this story and start going through it. So, let's start in verse 24. We'll read to verse 30, and then we're going to skip two parables, and we're going to go to 36. And that's where Jesus explains the parable to his disciples. Starting in verse 24. 
Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering out the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and find them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now jump to 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, probably Peter's house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. That's Jesus. And the field is the world. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Now here's the explanation. Verse 40. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. And will throw them into the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears... Let him hear. You pray with me. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I come before you as a congregation wanting to learn your word, wanting to understand your word. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We're thankful that we have the Holy Spirit to help us interpret the word. Be with us in this time and be with me. If there's anything additional you want say, bring it to my heart, bring it to my mind, allow me to speak clearly in a way that people can understand, allow the hearts to be opened, to hear your word, and let it fall for a ground. pray all this in your name, amen. <clears throat> so, there's three things we need to cover. First one, we need to analyze the left track. Remember I said the left track is the actual score, the agricultural score. We have to understand that track. Next, we have to understand the right track of the railroad. We have to understand what the truth that Jesus is trying to convey is. And once we have those two tracks, we can follow the railroad where it's going and apply it to our life. So, let's talk about the story. Head back to start at verse 24. This was actually common in the Roman Empire. A common way to seek revenge or to punish your enemy was you snuck into their field and you took some weed seed with you and you threw it on their crop while right after they seeded it. And then when they grew up together, now their field's just ripped. It's just full of weeds. There's no roundup. There's no spraying. All you got is someone to go out there and pull it. Maybe with some tool they might cut it. That's all you got to combat it. And if it's pervasive in this field, what are you going to do? 
It's just ruined. So Rome had legislation that prohibited overseeding wheat with darnel, which is what they're talking about in this parables. The tear is called, it's a plant called darnel. And you would, you could be punished for doing this if you got caught in the, in the room. So what is Darnell? Okay, scientific name. You know, all scientists have given all animals and plants and bacteria and fungus, everything is a scientific name. So the scientific name for Darnell, this is a zebra plant. Lolium, Temulenta. Lolium temulenta. That's the Latin scientific name. The common name, Darnell, poison Darnell, Darnell ryegrass, cockle, and false wheat. False wheat. That's the key one that I want to point out to you. The Latin, temulentus, means to be drunk or intoxicated. Darnell is an English word. It comes from a French word, and that French word means to be intoxicated. So not only does the scientific name mean intoxication, but then the Darnell word coming from, coming from French means intoxication. And so I, I was really curious. I, I got I found an article that talked about it. You don't find Darnell in, the, in North America or South America. It's in Europe, Asia, and Africa. But with modern technology, farmers have been able to sift out this weed seed. You know, I'm talking thousands of years ago. They finally figured out how we can get rid of this. But back then, they couldn't get rid of it. They couldn't get it out of their crop. Uh, what Darnell does is it mimics, it is an exact same looking plant from start to finish as wheat. It's, it sprouts the same, it grows at the same height, and it has the same stem, it has the same leaves. The only way you can tell the difference is when the head, if you ever look at a wheat when it's growing, you see the head start coming up through the stalk and then it pops up at the last leaf 